0: Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. Hey, Sammy. Hey, Monica. Today, we are continuing with part three of the Soap Note series. Our focus today is the assessment. So when it comes to the assessment, that can mean a few things for us as physical therapists, and we've broken it out into three key areas. Number one, what is our assessment of the patient? Number two, what information do we share with the patient? And number three, how do we keep reassessing throughout the plan of care?
1: So first thing we're going to dive into is our assessment of the patient. The first thing that we need to do when we're creating a patient-centered evaluation is to first look at what is the patient presenting like in terms of their self-efficacy, where they are in terms of their readiness to change, all of these different things that go into how well they're going to respond to PT and engage with the treatment that we're giving them. So it's key to make sure that we're carrying this through the entire exam that we're doing. If you didn't take a patient-centered subjective and you didn't do your exam in a patient-centered way, it's going to be hard to then give a patient-centered assessment to the person that's in front of you. And so we want to make sure that we're spending that time in the subjective and objective to really understand our patient's concern, where they're coming from, and their story, then assessing in a way that doesn't create a lot of nocebo effect and fear in the patient And then finally, then when we present our findings to the patient and to discuss where we go next from here, it feels a lot more cohesive and something that they can engage in better. So I think it's really important to make the point that we got to carry this all the way through.
0: Absolutely. I just 100% want to reiterate that. Looking back on my transition into a more patient-centered evaluation, the hardest thing was that I was trying to do a patient-centered assessment with the patient after I had done a provider-centered exam. The history part, I think, is a little bit easier for us to start shifting into a patient-centered approach. But the exam usually is the sticking point. You know, we're Mm -hmm. focused on the tone, um, especially of the pelvic floor, focused on the tone, the tenderness to palpation, all of these impairment level findings. And then we're trying to turn around and have a big picture conversation. And you're too caught up looking in the trees to actually have that 10,000-foot view. But that's what a patient-centered assessment is. It's giving them a 10,000-foot view with a framework of what they're going to be able to do, what you're going to assist them with, and perhaps who else needs to join the team to get them to where you want to go. So you have to make sure that you're able to both zoom in and zoom out as a provider, which is a skill. So if you're learning that, have a lot of grace and compassion for yourself, you're integrating a new skill set.
1: Monica, I would love to hear an example of how you started with a provider-centered objective exam, and then we're trying to give a patient-centered... <laughs> assessment, I think that would be really interesting to hear how that came up for you in the past.
0: You know, I think that comes up the most in pelvic health because... We focus on what this pelvis is looking like. So we, we take this beautiful patient-centered history, right? We learn all about their pee, poop, sex, pregnancy, postpartum, pelvic pain experience. I think as pelvic PTs, we exceed in that. We listen to their story. We're there for them. We validate them. And then we turn around. We put them on a table flat on their back. We palpate their pelvis. We are taking notes of the perfect scale in our head. This is weak. That's tight. Endurance is off. Coordination is off positive tenelles tenderness to palpation etc cetera, etc cetera. and then you get to the assessment and it's like so what do i tell you now you know and and the translation was like you have a tight pelvic floor and once we work on that tightness in all these different ways it will get better but tightness is an impairment and there is a lot of questions around whether it's an impairment that actually predicts pain. So, if I'm leading with the impairments in my assessment, then I am giving them a provider focused assessment. I'm telling them, here's what I identified, and here's what I want to fix for you. And if I do a patient centered exam, which could still be an internal exam, The key difference is that I start my assessment by talking about the framework of understanding pain. And to me, that really comes down to having a biopsychosocial approach to explaining pain or using that load versus capacity explanation. And load versus capacity works beautifully for most of my ortho clients. I would say for very simple pelvic clients like your stress urinary incontinence, your fecal incontinence, you know. Traditionally, your up-training group you could talk about is load versus capacity, and your more complicated pain group or your more persistent symptom group is usually going to be that biopsychosocial explanation, which can still factor in mechanical impairments if they're related. If someone has endometriosis, I'm not going to pretend that just mind exercises and diaphragmatic breathing is going to eliminate their pain. I mean, I have to be able to say, here's what's happening in your body mechanically. Here's what also influences pain. Here's what we can address together and really wrap that into a big package. Another thing for us to mull over, Sammy, is are perceived barriers to patient getting better? So if we back up to our assessment of the patient, which is our number one question, what do we perceive are the barriers that will get in the way? And I think we're great about identifying these barriers. I think sometimes we're too good at identifying perceived barriers. And I want to insert a word of caution that when we perceive someone to have a barrier to care, it could be our own bias. I know that I have looked at Little old people and said, Oh my gosh, they're not gonna be able to do the strength training, or you know, they're not gonna want to exercise. So, age, race, gender, sexual orientation, weight these are all potential biases that we have that we can bring into our assessment unknowingly. And it is our role as providers to really question why do we think someone will respond to this plan of care or why will they not respond to this plan of care and to question, you know, if there's any of our own biases in there and if there is to have that conversation with someone other than the patient because we're not trying to work on ourselves while we're with the patient. We want to do that with another provider, with a counselor, with a friend, and then come back into that space having integrated our new understanding.
1: Absolutely. So the next aspect of a patient-centered assessment that we want to go into is now we've talked about what's going on with the patient and our assessment of them. And then we also want to talk about what is our assessment of the patient's condition and what do we share with them about that? So how do we communicate, here's what's going
0: on with you, here's that 10,000-foot view? Love to hear your thoughts, Monica. (laughs) Sure. So it was back to that example that I shared earlier is are you leading with impairment focus or are you leading with a framework? And personally that's what's helped me. There are probably different ways to approach this. So this is not prescriptive, but I found that when I start with load versus capacity or biopsychosocial influences of pain, I end up having a conversation that starts with the 10,000-foot view and then becomes specific to them. And I can pull in aspects of how they've been training, you know, if it's load versus capacity, or perhaps that they need to start training, and that would be helpful. And if it's biopsychosocial, I can start wide and then come in and say, yeah, you remember you were talking about that stressful period in your life. On top of that, we notice that there's some behaviors that are possibly contributing to the pain, like." constipation, not even a fiber. Those are just examples, right, that you can get as narrow and specific as you want, but you're still leading with what they can do to influence the pain. And I think that's what a patient-centered assessment really is. And I know that in my body, I used to give a provider-centered assessment because I would feel very stressed to perform. I would feel very much like, I need to have all of the answers to why you have pain and to what I'm going to do about the pain. Mm. Which really, you know, begs the point of sometimes we don't fully know. And sometimes you have this conversation and the patient's like, but what triggered it? And I'll say, honestly, we might find that out as we work together. We might not. But either way, Here's what evidence shows helps, or here's what similar patients have really responded to. So, how about we start there? And you know, if that's a conversation, that's a conversation. I would just say to you, be sure that you're also learning and challenging yourself so that that is not ever a default answer. I think we are so type A that we hate not knowing the answer, but also you know, just want to put it out there. If you're not sure how to have a biopsychosocial or load versus capacity conversation, I would not practice that on the patient. I would practice that with, (laughs) you know, a mentor. And a mentor could just be a peer that has more of that type of conversation. You know, as a pelvic PT, it might mean finding an orthopedic provider and saying, how do you explain shoulder impingement without saying your shoulder is impinging on these structures?" Or it might be finding someone in the pelvic health space and asking them, how do you have a conversation around complex pelvic pain? Or how do you explain vaginismus without saying, your pelvic floor is tight and it will never loosen and here's all the things that we need to do to make it loosen. So that is something I did not do as much of CME back to our whole imposter syndrome conversation is like, I really felt like because I didn't know how to have those conversations, it was a failing on me. So, I would say to everyone now, it is not weird. It is not a sign of failure for you to be like, I don't know how to have this conversation in a really empowering way. So, let me try to find someone or even go online and learn that way. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I would have spared a lot of patients who were really trying. I was really trying to make that jump, and for the most part, trying to make it myself. So
1: I think one quick and easy way, just like you said, is to not focus on impairments, but focus on the solution. So what you brought up just there made me question, do we really need to share every impairment that we find with the patient? Do we really need to tell them, well, your glutes are weak and your hip has some femoral acetabular impingement and these structures are rubbing on each other and you're having this difficulty with range of motion and you're tight on this side? Like, What if we just shared with them that these types of interventions, strengthening their glutes, working on range of motion, stretching in certain ways, could help them improve their pain without necessarily telling them, here's everything that's wrong with you. You're so effed up. Now I'm going to fix you. Like, what if we just focused on the positive instead of dumping all of that on them? Because I think there's some times where we don't truly know, to your point, like, is improving their, their glute strength by one MMT grade? Is that really equal a symptomatic improvement? I don't know. I don't truly know if that's true. It might be true for certain patients. It might not be true for others. That might not explain their entire pain. So I think that we need to talk about the potential options, all of the things that we could do together without focusing on you are wrong. Your body is wrong. I got to
0: fix it for you. I so love that you brought that up and, and said that that is so freeing as a provider and it's so empowering to the patient because nobody can hear a list of 12 things that's quote unquote wrong with them and feel like wow i've got this i i'm going to really take control i mean we're already putting them in a deficit and then we want to empower them it's like how are you going to empower them when you just listed all the things that aren't okay yeah. which does not mean we avoid symptom reproduction and I think we want to talk about symptom reproduction. We want to say it's a good thing we reproduced your pain in the clinic. The single leg squat is painful. The hip range of motion is painful. And so what do those mean for us? Well, those mean that PT is a great place to start because we've reproduced your symptoms. We know how much pain you had with them. So now we can track that as progress over time. And now they have something to track that they can pay attention to. Oh, a single yeah. leg squat. Oh, my how much I can move my hip comfortably. Okay, that makes sense to me, right? Yeah,
1: that's such a great patient empowering tool. And then the other thing that you had said within that that I think was so valuable is focusing on symptom reproduction versus pathoanatomy. One of my explanations that I've started to develop over time for low back pain, which is one that I think a lot of us see, is that if somebody has a directional preference with their back pain, so, you know, let's say their extension is really painful and maybe they have a diagnosis of spinal stenosis. And we notice that they have that classic pattern of flexion feels good, extension feels bad. I'm not going to necessarily share with the patient, well, you have spinal stenosis, so that means that extension is going to be painful for you because it's impinging on all of these nerve roots or compressing all of these facet joints. Instead of saying something like that, which to the patient is extremely scary, right? They're thinking, okay, there's something wrong with me, and now I can never extend my back or I'm going to have pain. Instead of making that focus, we could say, It seems like extension feels bad to you and flexion felt better. I'm noticing some things with your posture and some of the different movements that we went through that your default seems to be that you spend more time in extension. Let's see if we can find ways to have you be in flexion more of the time so that you're spending less time in extension and then that will decrease the sensitivity of the system overall if you're spending less time in an irritating position it'll allow things to calm down you'll be able to then move more comfortably in any direction that you choose so we're not necessarily vilifying extension in that case we're just saying hey you're doing a lot of this thing that we know hurts you you know that extension hurts you you can measure that yourself. So if we know that that doesn't feel good, let's spend a little less time there, instead of telling them you can never extend your back again because you have stenosis. And I, I think it's it's so true what you said earlier. Like I notice for myself when I have a condition that I feel really comfortable treating and I've had more experience treating, I'm so much more likely to give that holistic, patient centered explanation. As somebody who did a women's health residency, I'm confident treating a lot of areas such as the low back and the pelvis and the lower extremity. But if I get a shoulder patient in my office, I feel less comfortable with that. I'm going to be completely honest with that. I'm not super confident when I treat a shoulder. And so I find with those patients, I tend to go right back into that biomechanical explanation because of my own lack of comfort. And I think that's something that I need to examine and work on and to your point, talk to a mentor about. How can I explain the shoulder pain in a different way that's not as threatening?
0: Yeah, those are great points, Sammy. So what you talked about does lead me to question, do we ever give someone a mechanical explanation of their pain? And I think the answer is yes. Sometimes we do. And it's very appropriate. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, especially when someone is acute and truly has a mechanical cause such as a fracture, a trauma, a car accident, that's not the person that we're going to look at and say, yes, your stress is really influencing your perception (laughs) of pain right now. I mean, you're going to get booted out as their PT immediately, (laughs) right? So it's thinking of those acute phases or even those tissue healing phases, right? 12 weeks for bone healing. Remember, biopsychosocial includes bio, which is the mechanics. The mechanics is like, which part is damaged and what is wrong? And when there truly is a part that is damaged, it's time for us to bring that in and to use that as an empowering conversation and to say to the patient, we expect this tissue to start feeling better in X amount of weeks, And your pain control can even be sooner than that, but the tissue requires this long to heal itself. So let's talk about recovery from that standpoint. Yeah. And I think that's important,
1: too, because there are certain timeframes, such as after a hip replacement, where we have these direct precautions that we need to give to the patient. It's important in those cases to make sure that those are really clear and they understand why, but also trying to frame them in a way that doesn't make them fearful to move forever absolutely i think the timeline that you gave of after this time frame your body will be healed and these tissues will be healed helps them understand that it's a
0: short term restriction of movement not a forever i can't do this right and if it's been more than 6 months i mean we know that within 6 months if a tissue is going to heal most not everything but most will heal you know so we need to stop blaming it on oh, it's this tissue at that point, right, or whatever point is appropriate if if it's a longer time frame for something. Yeah, totally. So that kind of leads us into our last point, which is reassessing. The assessment doesn't end just because you told them what the assessment is and wrote the note. (laughs) Um, And I think we know this intuitively, but we have to keep reassessing. We need to reassess the same factors that were important to the patient, the ones that they're able to easily track. If there's impairments that are very important to us, I think we need to assess those as well. But keep in mind, do you have to communicate every impairment to the patient? Is the benefit of that actually positive or is it creating a nocebic perception of what's going on? There's no right or wrong, but that's a question for us to ask ourselves. Yeah. And we need to keep our reassessment going and assess new things when the patient is getting better when the patient is getting worse, and when the patient plateaus. So the same things you assess might evolve as you learn more or as their presentation changes. Absolutely. We want to keep monitoring and keep checking in with
1: our patients and also keep questioning what our assumptions are. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Part 3, assessment. We'll be coming in next week with our final episode in our Soap Note series, which is our plan, where we'll discuss how to create a patient-centered plan with our patients. So stay tuned for that. Stay conscious, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.